0: As humans, we can pretty much convince ourselves of anything. It's kind of our superpower. The ability to create our own reality and live based on that reality, often ignoring all the other potential realities thrown at us by outside forces. It can be very motivating to truly believe in something that others don't, to truly believe in yourself when others don't, and we can use that belief to propel us to great heights against all odds in the face of all doubters. And as far as motivation is concerned, it doesn't really matter if your reality is real. Ah, therein lies the rug. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for, sometimes because of what they did and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. A quick note, this episode contains profanity and conversations about violence. Listener discretion is advised. Tony Kiritzis can be summed up in one phrase. He was a good friend and a bad enemy. He was a hardworking, come from nothing, part-time car salesman with dreams of turning his life around with the real estate deal. He'd saved up everything he had over the 40 years of his life and purchased 18 acres of land in Indiana. He cleared out many of the trees and maintained the property himself. He'd purchased the property with a $110,000 loan from Meridian Mortgage Company. His plan was to start a shopping center by leasing out portions of the land to various businesses. But apparently, finding businesses to agree to build on his land was harder than he anticipated. For some reason, even very interested buyers seemed to appear and then disappear. At one point, according to Tony, a grocery store franchise reached out to him with a serious offer, and before he even finished getting the paperwork ready, they mysteriously lost interest. Undeterred, Tony kept advertising his property in the local paper and he kept making his loan payments to Meridian. But before long, Tony started to run out of money. He started paying late, then later, then even later. Over the years, he requested and received multiple extensions from Meridian. He even received a refinancing agreement that brought the total loan balance to $130,000. And after four years, he hadn't secured any long term tenants. He put in his latest request for an extension and it was denied. He was notified of the impending foreclosure on his property. In February of 1977, 44-year-old Tony walked into Meridian Mortgage in downtown Indianapolis, looking to clear the balance on his loan once and for all. He had an 8 a.m. meeting scheduled with Richard Hall. Hall, whose friends called him Dick, had been the primary point of contact for Tony, and he was the president of the company his father had founded nearly 50 years ago. He was running a little late as he fought through traffic on a snowy day. When he pulled up to the building and walked inside, Tony was waiting for him in the reception area. They greeted one another. Hall noticed that one of Tony's arms was in a sling and that he was carrying a roll of papers, which he said were blueprints for some development plans he had for his land. He was also carrying a long white rectangular box, which looked to be just big enough to fit the development plans inside. He led Tony to his office. Once inside, Tony closed the door behind him. He pulled out a pistol and handcuffed Hall's hands together. He then revealed a contraption that was as odd as it was terrifying. He tied a wire to the trigger of a shot off shotgun and had attached that wire to a ring that he put on his index finger. The other end of the wire was tied to the barrel of the shotgun and formed a noose, which he placed around Hall's neck. The safety had been removed from the shotgun and the contraption was set up so that if enough pressure was applied to the wire at either end, the gun would go off. He referred to it as a dead man's line, named after a dead man's switch, which is a switch that is designed to be automatically activated if the human operator becomes incapacitated. It's often a required feature on heavy machinery where the machine shuts off if someone stops applying pressure to a switch. It's a life-saving mechanism, but in this case it was used in quite the opposite way. If either he or Hall were incapacitated, the gun which was fixed to the back of Hall's neck would fire. After the installation was complete, he called the police.
1: Is this the police? Yes, it is, sir. This is a dire emergency. A real serious thing. I've just taken a prisoner. It's not a crank call. Where are you at, sir? I'll send you some help. Uh, don't listen, to me. please. I I don't really disrespect police officers. I'm a man that these people try to bankrupt. They have fucked me around for four years. Now the thing about it, officer, is I want this done my way. Now I'll tell you what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to send at least two police officers. I'll tell you where we are in a minute, as soon as I figure it out. Just hang on a minute. I'm a little upset. Okay, just take it easy. Get you your fucking life on it. This is a bad thing. What's your name? It's Officer Miller. Mr. Miller? Yes. Yes, sir. I'm not a bad fellow myself. Well, I know you are. I just want to find out That's where he is. I'm, I'm a mean motherfucker and I'm mad. You know, they'll do anything to save this man's life because everybody thinks I'm they will not think that I'm a big man me to raise motherfucker. Well, I eat. Mean, i will mad these motherfuckers, try to take everything I've got. Well, let me tell you something else, Mr. Miller. Okay. I'm very concerned about this man's family. I'm concerned about his mother and his wife and especially his children. I know that if anybody dies or has a heart attack in this fucking deal, but I'm a doomed man. Now, let me tell you something. I don't want to die. There's no fucking suicidal cell in my fucking body. You, if I time take it, you'd be mad too. i put it to you this way. If somebody sets you up to take everything you got, every fucking thing you've got, that's like
0: the fucking mafia, or worse. After about a 30-minute conversation with the dispatcher, the pair made their way outside, surrounded by police, news reporters, and shocked onlookers, the whole thing being broadcast live on TV. He was looking for a car. He couldn't use his because earlier that morning, he'd accidentally broken the key while trying to take it out of the ignition. So they started walking. After walking five blocks, they came up on a police car of one of the officers who had rushed to the scene. Tony slid in first through the driver's side and into the passenger seat. He drug Hall in behind him into the driver's seat. Everything was going as planned. Hall drove them eight miles to the Crestwood Village Apartments where Tony lived. He took Hall upstairs to his third floor apartment and told police that he had the place rigged with explosives. Through his window, they could see wires hanging all throughout the apartment prompting police to evacuate all tenants from the complex. Neither Tony nor Hall would leave the apartment for the next three days. At times, Hall was kept handcuffed in the bathroom. Other times, he sat at a kitchen table while Tony made a series of phone calls for police and friends and family. He stressed that while he was not afraid to die, he had absolutely no desire to. He was not insane. He was not acting irrationally. A wrong had been committed against him, better yet a series of wrongs, and his only intention was to right those wrongs in the least violent way possible. He had no intentions of hurting Hall or himself and expressed his concern for what would happen to Hall's family if something happened to Hall. He even let Hall call his wife to assure her that he was okay. Tony also made multiple phone calls to local radio host Fred Hackman, who aired those conversations.
1: Tony, do you know what I don't want? I don't want you and uh, Mr. Hall, I don't want you to be, the two of you, to be a damn statistic. Hey, baby, I'm going to tell you something. I've I've said it a thousand times, and it doesn't embarrass me to say it. I do not want to die. I never have wanted to die. I am not afraid to die. I'm a very, very vibrant person. I enjoy the outside. I enjoy working. I enjoy living. I enjoy people. There's a hell of a lot I haven't done. The thing I've done most of, and I don't begrudge it if I have worked like a dog. I'd like to live a little before I die, Fred. Well, that's what uh, some of your friends, when they call me, they said, uh, you know, Tony started working at an early age. He assumed some responsibilities. Uh, he told you the other day that he had never married, et cetera, and he worked his life, and that's... You better believe that, pal. And baby, let me tell you something. I've had my heart broken by people close to me so badly that I really didn't think that I'd come out of it. It's been a hell of a thing. Tony, you believe let, that? let's see if we can work it through that. Yeah, pal. Let's see if we can work it through. I, I'll be in touch with you. You let me know, will you, Fred? Well, just keep listening to 1070 there, uh, Tony, and uh, I'll give a call if I need you on some further development. Thanks, Mr. Heckman. Thank you, Tony.
0: Okay, so a lot has happened up to this point, and maybe you're wondering why or how this guy resembles anything other than a psychopath who's bitter about not being able to keep up with his loan payments. And maybe you're right, but before you completely make up your mind, I should give you Tony's perspective and why he keeps alluding to the idea that he was screwed over. See, Tony knew his land was valuable and it had continued to increase in value since the day he purchased it four years ago, recently being appraised at a value that was almost triple what he paid for it. So we couldn't understand why businesses weren't flocking to it. And every time he thought he had a potential suitor, the deal fell through. He could have just sold the property outright and walked away with the profit, but there was no way he was going to do that after what he discovered. After countless meetings and conversations with Hall, Hall's father and other Meridian reps, Tony was convinced that he would figured out what was going on. He believed that Meridian, under the direction of Hall, had been steering potential tenants away from his property and into the direction of other properties that they owned or had a stake in. And as the true holder of the deed to his property, they purposely hid information about prospective buyers so that they could wait Tony out. They knew he was struggling to keep up with his payments and wanted to let him default on the loan so that they could seize the property, sell it and keep all of the profits for themselves. As is often true with allegations like this, it was hard to prove or disprove Tony's theory. He said they did it. They said they didn't. He couldn't show proof that they had done it. And naturally, they couldn't show proof that they hadn't because how would they? It was never confirmed one way or the other, and it's been debated for the last 40 years, but what was never in question, what was never debatable, was that Tony believed he had been screwed over. In his reality, he had been taken advantage of by people more powerful than him, but he would not go silently, and even if he didn't win in the end, at least he got to tell the world about what had happened to him.
1: Hey, let me tell you, I know I'm on a fucking long, one-way, dead-end fucking street. But I'll tell you one fucking thing. I didn't come up here to back down. And I'll tell you, I don't want to die. I ain't afraid to die though. And I ain't trying to prove it. I ain't afraid to die. It's my only fucking choice, Miller. I'm flat ass tell you.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't. They know it's
1: my only fucking choice. You, you wait. You, you'll get wind of what these cocksuckers have done.
0: Tony's demands were clear. He wanted an immediate cancellation of the one hundred and thirty thousand dollar loan. A public admission of guilt by Meridian, along with a sincere apology for the corrupt business practices leveraged against him. A signed document from Meridian with a promise to pay him five million dollars and a court document guaranteeing him full immunity from any prosecution or mental health evaluation. As you can imagine, because of the circumstances, Meridian agreed to cancel the loan immediately. They wrote a public apology, which was read live on TV by one of Tony's friends, and they delivered a promissory note assuring Tony that he be paid five million dollars. And after a few days, he was granted full immunity by the prosecution's office. The court document granting his immunity was sent to his attorney for review. Once Tony got word that everything looked good at about 10 p.m. on the third night, he put the contraption back around Hall's neck and marched him downstairs into the apartment clubhouse, which almost looked like it had been set up like a stage. There were police and reporters fanned out across the room. Tony was ready to take his victory lap.
1: No, 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 no. turn the goddamn cameras on I'm gonna show you something turn the cameras on all three you hold it I want it on national television I've been called a kidnapper an extortionist a thug and everything else I want it on all three national channels I've got friends all over the country yeah and I'm sober friends. I had six drinks in 1976, and I haven't had any this year. And I don't miss them a fucking bit.
0: Tony read his handwritten speech that he'd prepared over the last three days, detailing the wrongs that had been committed against him, giving specific examples of deals that were sabotaged based on the evidence he'd made note of over the years.
1: February 10, 1977. i want a glass of water. This statement is being made to try and state the items Then Mr. Caricis alludes, and I don't like that word, I charge and they've admitted it, alludes to as being illegal and unethical acts of the whole group.
0: He also called out people in the audience that he knew, praising officers, friends, and Fred Hackman, as he asked them to come out of the audience and stand next to him in his moment of victory. They were noticeably uncomfortable, to say the least. Come
1: Come here, Fred.
0: You're a hell of a
1: man, baby. Hold it. Where's Mr. Gallagher? Hi, Bobby. Come here, Bob Young. You're my buddy. This trooper right here. Come here, Mark. A hell of a good friend of mine. A lot of friends of mine here.
0: This spectacle lasted nearly 40 minutes. After the speech, the wire was taken off of Hall's neck and Tony turned with a shotgun and fired it off in the distance to prove it was loaded. It caused panic from the media outside of the building and they thought Hall had been shot. To his and only his surprise, Tony was arrested immediately and taken into custody. Tony found out pretty quickly that none of the guarantees he'd secured would actually be honored. Meridian released a statement saying that everything they had admitted to or promised had only been done to spare Hall's life. The prosecution's office said the same and added that immunity could not be granted under threat. The trial took place in October of 1977, eight months after the incident. There wasn't much the defense could do to refute the charges against Tony, and there wasn't much the prosecution had to do to prove them. Much of the ordeal had been captured on camera or through audio recording. So the defense focused its attention on establishing the character of Tony as a good but broken man. Friends and family testified that he'd been a hardworking and honest man all of his life. The defense stressed the fact that he'd never been convicted of a crime. To counter this, the prosecution brought up witnesses who testified about Tony's temper and history of violence. This wasn't the only time he'd held a gun to someone. Even though Tony proclaimed throughout the commission of the crime that he was not in the least bit insane, his attorneys convinced him that pleading not guilty by reason of insanity was his only hope. Tony took the stand, fighting back tears, and told his life story. He loved his dad, but he'd been very hard on him. He began working at the age of nine, pushing an ice cream cart. He broke down when talking about the vow he made while standing over his mother's coffin. He'd promised her that he'd take care of the family. He said he didn't want to do what he had to do to Hall, and he tried really hard not to, but he had to. Psychiatrists from both sides testified to Tony's level of sanity, each doing what they were paid to do, completely disagree with the other. The defense presented no evidence to prove or insinuate that the mortgage company had been unfair to Tony. As a matter of fact, they agreed, or at least they told the jury they agreed, that it was pretty clear Tony had been treated fairly, even pointing out the multiple extensions Tony had been granted on the loan. And they used that point to highlight Tony's insanity, saying that any sane person would have come to the conclusion that the company had done nothing wrong, and for anyone who saw it differently enough to grab a gun and do what Tony did, he had to be insane. It wasn't a particularly strong argument, but it didn't have to be. Unlike today, in 1977, whenever someone played not guilty by reason of insanity, it wasn't up to the defense to prove that the defendant was insane. It was up to the prosecution to prove that he wasn't. And that can be pretty hard to do.
1: We, the jury, find the defendant, Anthony G. Kiritzis, not guilty by reason of insanity. We further find that the defendant, Anthony G. Kiritzis... Committed the act charged in Count One of the information, and that at the time the defendant was insane and is therefore not guilty by reason of insanity.
0: The verdict was broadcast live, and many people around the world were happy about it. When it was announced at an Indiana Pacers game, the crowd stood up and cheered. Tony was seen as a sympathetic figure who refused to be beaten down and washed away by a powerful, corrupt loan company. But Tony didn't get away completely scot free. He spent over 10 years in a number of mental health facilities. His property was swiftly foreclosed on, sold at an auction, and it was unironically purchased by Meridian. He was released from his final mental health facility in 1988 and lived relatively quietly until his death in January of 2005. He was 72. When Tony was holding that shotgun, screaming through the phone, when he was on the witness stand pleading his case, and even after he was acquitted of all charges, Tony repeatedly apologized for what he had done, but never apologized for why he had done it. He really believed in what he was doing. He felt like he was a man with no options. He honestly felt he had been cheated, taken advantage of, conned. That was his reality. And the anger that it produced in him was uncontrollable and very real even if the reason for it wasn't. But that's not really the point, is it?
1: If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero.